Good morning. Every 30 seconds, someone passes away, according to the American Heart Association, from a heart-related disease. In fact, 801,000 people in the U.S. died from heart disease, stroke, and other cardiovascular deaths last year. Actually, this is about 2,200 Americans die each day from these diseases. That means 40, every 30 to 40 seconds here in the United States, somebody passes away from this. That means if you do the math, 2,880 people will die by 24 hours from this moment right now uh, related to heart disease. That means more than every single roadway accident here in the United States, every single one of them, all of those combined, we lose more people to heart disease than we do to any of those accidents. We actually lose more people to heart disease than every single form of cancer combined. And probably the most devastating thing is that there's this once vibrant beating heart, healthy beating heart, that something happens along the way that that heart gets choked out, loses its vibrancy, and begins down the path of what we see as heart disease and later ends in death. It, the, the, the saddest thing about it is the majority of these cases, it could have been prevented. In the majority of the cases, it could have been prevented. The American Heart Association calls it this, the life's simple seven. Maybe you're familiar with these. Life's simple seven are this, not smoking, physical activity, uh, healthy diet, body weight, control of cholesterol, blood pressure, and blood sugar. Dealing with these things, the simple seven is what the American Heart Association says. You deal with these things and you greatly reduce or you prevent, you really can, can look at what is killing people every single day in our country and it's preventable if you take these simple seven seriously. And today we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3 and the reality is it's all about heart disease. It's about heart disease of a spiritual nature, a spiritual condition of the heart. And the spiritual heart disease is very much, very similar to physical heart disease. Why? Because it is, in a very similar way, it is preventable. In fact, not only is it preventable, what happens with spiritual heart disease, it's a heart that is vibrant and beating and, and chasing after things of God is actually pulled away and choked out in a very similar manner. And the next thing you know, that heart now is damaged. It's diseased. In Scripture, we see that as a hardened heart. And so as we look at our passage today, we will see and we will realize that spiritual heart disease in this room will actually claim more victims than any other spiritual malady that we will come into contact with. Spiritual heart disease, this drawing, this hardening of one's heart and this pulling away from things of God. And what's most tragic is that spiritually speaking, in every case, in all cases, it is preventable. We are in this new sermon series called Resolution. Brian opened it up last week as we continue to move through the book of Hebrews. We try to find resolution where the text offers better resolutions for the coming new year. Not in the same way that you and I pursue resolutions on a personal nature. Hebrews 3.1, we don't have to go there yet, but it says, Holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. That's the way this passage starts, this chapter, this section starts. It says, fix your eyes 
on Jesus? Are you concerned about the coming election and what that has to do over the next four years or maybe even eight years for our nation? Instead of being fixated on that, will you fix your eyes, will you fix yourself, your thoughts on Jesus? Are you realizing in the news that there are more and more terror attacks and something that we have to be aware of and the world that we live in is ever-changing? Are you going to become fixated on that or will you fix your thoughts on Jesus? Maybe this year, this January, you realize that in your life there is a significant status change, if you will, in your life. You have lost a loved one this year. You have lost that relationship for so many years that has buoyed you along. You have lost that child who has run off, it would seem, and you're not sure if that prodigal child is coming back. That status is different this year. If you're living through that situation, does that fixate you? Does that stop you from moving forward, or will you fix your thoughts on Jesus? As New Year's resolutions are made, as we start going into the new year, we are trying harder, being better, trying to instill in ourselves a new program, create the right program, and then we'll have the change that we're looking for. But the reality of the situation is change only comes when we fix our eyes on Christ and allow him to change us from the inside out. Chapter 3, verse 6 says, but God is faithful, Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And Brian spent some time here last week. We are the temple of God. You and I are the temple of God. Is that demonstrating what Jesus is to someone else in your life? And your workplace, are you Jesus to your workplace? In your family, your extended family, you as the grandfather, the grandmother, do you demonstrate who Jesus is to the extended family? Say, you know what? I'm not sure what to do in this situation. I wonder what grandpa would do. I wonder what Aunt Susie would do because if I can at least guess at what they would do, it would probably be closer to what Jesus would do than what I would do. Why does that happen? Because we are the temple of the holy God. Christ is faithful, it says there. Who is faithful? Christ is faithful. We get stuck sometimes thinking that it's all about you and I and how we dive into something or how hard can we hold on. Alcoholics call this concept white-knuckle sobriety. White-knuckle sobriety. Alcoholics will give up alcohol purely on grit and determination alone. But they actually have not changed their life habits. And so they are not drinking alcohol. And some people will call this person a dry drunk, meaning they haven't had a a glass of wine in 15 years, but they still have that same whatever kind of holding them down. White knuckle sobriety. Some people will go through, uh, whether it's here in a local sense or even on a national sense, on national TV, the idea of the biggest loser, of losing all of that weight excuse me, getting physically healthy and getting to a point where their body looks better, but have they really changed their lifestyle? Is it any different? That's really the transition that happens because if you don't make that transition, yes, your body has changed. It's maybe white knuckle physical change, but what happens after that? And some Christians, (coughs) this room is no different than any other, have that white knuckle approach to Christianity. They learn all the right behaviors, all the right activities, learn how to say all the right things at the right time. And as the biggest disservice that we can do for one another is to force behavioral change without realizing that Jesus Christ is the only one can actually make that change. They're not addressing the diseased heart. 
So as Brian closed last week, the passage says this, the hope in which we glory, the hope in which we glory is not about whether or not you went to that rated R movie. Do you realize that? That is not the hope in which you, there is so much more than that. It is so much bigger than that. God wants so much more for you and for me. And today we're going to see the author of Hebrews. Hebrews was written to the Hebrews, a people who knew what it was like to live under religious rule and religious law and do all the right things, and yet they missed it. The Messiah they waited 400 years for had been in their midst, and they missed it. And these Hebrews that the author is writing to, they have followed after Jesus. They look, they, they didn't miss that part. They've got Jesus, but they keep putting all the trappings of religion in there. It's so easy for them to just slide back into that. And it's just as easy for you and for me. And so what we're going to do here in Hebrews today is we're going to look at a case study, the issue of heart disease, straight on. So here's the outline. The case study for heart disease, the symptoms of heart disease, and the cure for heart disease. That's where we're going. That's our outline. So if you are using that outline, you can fill it in now or we'll get there, I promise. I know I was moving quickly. The case study, the symptoms, and the cure. If you're taking notes, that's our outline. Here we go. Open up your Bibles, and I hope you've got a Bible with you this morning. If not, in front of you in the pew, we're using the NIV this morning on page 1,255. Hebrews chapter 3. You can follow along using that Bible, using your own Bible, using the YouVersion app. If you want to do that, that would be fine. The first thing we want to talk about this morning is this, and you've got it in your, your outline in your notes, the case study for heart disease. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 says this. So as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are go always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath on my anger. They shall never enter <coughs> my rest. Now you'll notice if you're looking in your Bibles there, just before verse 12 in this section, 7 through 11, you'll see it's on an indent, or it's kind of offset. It looks a little bit like poetry or something. It's kind of, the, the face typing looks a little bit different in your scripture. Why is that? Well, actually, it's a quote from Psalm 95. It's an exact quote from Psalm 95, which is uh, poetic literature. And the way that it's written out there, Psalm 95 is actually referring back again to Numbers uh, chapter 14. What's going on in Numbers chapter 14 in the Old Testament is a very significant moment that we don't have to go into all the details there. I just want to fill the gaps in for you. They're on the cusp of going into the promised land. They're right there. They're waiting to go in. God has brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. He has dealt with everything in the wilderness. They're about to go into the promised land, the land of rest. And they've come from Egypt. And if you've seen the movie Ben-Hur, if you know your scripture, you know that they've dealt with the plagues. They've dealt with all that's gone on in Egypt. They've dealt with the flies. They've dealt with the locusts. They've dealt with all of their cattle being killed. They've dealt with darkness. They've dealt with hailstorms. They've dealt with all of this. And God brings his people out, and he does some unbelievable, remarkable things for his people all to get them where? To the promised land. And they are right at the door. They're right about to go in. And what do they do? They send out 10 men. They send out 10 spies to be able to survey the land, make sure they know what's going on. They send 10 men out, and if you know the story, they all come back. And eight of them look at the land, and they say, we've got a problem. 
Now Josh and Caleb look at the situation, they look at it a little bit differently than the other men. But the eight men come back and they say, we've got a problem, a really huge problem. These people are tall. And, and the Jewish people, maybe they're extra short or something. They're like, this is a problem. And they're calling them giants, but they're not really giants. They're maybe like NCAA Division I basketball players, maybe not the NBA. Just, you know, they're big. They're tall. They're a problem if you're going to go into battle against these people. And they're looking at that, and they see them, and they look, and they go, what are we going to do here? How do we handle this? But the two guys, Josh and Caleb, two of the ten, they look at it and they say, this is not a problem. Look what we just came through. Look what God has done for us in the wilderness, how he provided for us daily with food, how he's provided for us uh, with a cloud by day and a fire by night. But the other eight and the rest of Israel get distracted and get pulled away. And they're not certain that God will see them to victory if they go into battle with these tall people, these giants. So the situation they end up in they demand a new leadership, and they revolt against Moses and Aaron and the leaders. Scripture says that they murmur. There's murmuring, murmuring, murmuring. That's one of those words. It's actually, it's an onomatopoeia. Remember this from English class? I, I learned this in ninth grade. I don't know if onomatopoeia, the reason, how you know what it is, is oh no ma, I got to pia, right? That's how you remember what, this is new for some of you. That's Okay. The sound that happens in the bathroom, that reminds you, anonymatopoeia, oh no ma, I got a pia. That's how you remember, okay, that's what anonymatopoeia is. It's the sound. It's something that creates that word. My mic went out for a second. The zipper, that's a the zipping sound of a zipper or a buzzing of a bee or, or, or murmuring. Murmuring sounds like murmuring, murmur, 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 murmur. And you can hear people murmuring, right? So they're murmuring, they're deciding, you know what's going to happen? What's going to happen here is we don't want this leadership anymore. We are no longer going to follow through. And God says to Moses, he says, how long do I have to do this? How long will they not believe in me? And as a result, what does God do? God banishes all of them from entering the promised land. He says, for 40 years, we're going to do laps in the desert until you wear yourselves out and die. You're not coming in. Why? Because he realized the people of God who had been brought out of Egypt by a pillar of smoke by day and fire by night. This is how they traveled. This is how they moved. He provided for everything. He made sure that they knew what it was. They ended up missing out what God had for them in their lives. Why? Because of heart disease. Their heart just got choked out. It started pulling away from what they knew and what they realized to be the truth, and it just gradually choked that life out. And they no longer could see, they no longer could understand what God was up to. If anyone, in this case study, if anyone should have no trouble believing that God had a plan for their lives, that God would move and interact and work with them, if they felt a heart disease, if the people, if they felt to it, What the author here in Hebrews is saying, so can you and I. Anyone can. So take care. You need to recognize the symptoms. So imagine, if you will, if you're ever playing a medic in a movie. Do you ever ever pretend that you're a person in a movie? Like, because, Rebecca says no. No, you don't. All right. 
I will never be a doctor, but I can pretend I'm a doctor in a movie, right? So if you're a doctor in a movie and you, you are dealing with someone, you're in a cafeteria somewhere and somebody grabs their chest, falls over flat on their back and starts, the medic in the movie says they're having a heart attack. Why? Because that's all that you know. There's, there's a little more subtle ways that you might have a heart attack. But if you're in a movie, it's going to be obvious and you're going to know what to do. There's some symptoms that you need to be aware of and know. These are the obvious symptoms of a heart attack. These are the obvious symptoms of heart disease. So let's talk about it. It's our next fill-in. The symptoms of heart disease. The symptoms of heart disease. Verse 12. See to it, or so take care, some translations say, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. God. An unbelieving heart. See to it that you recognize the symptoms. What are some of the symptoms? The first symptoms, you can mark these in if you want. I don't have fill-ins for you. The first symptom would be doubt. Doubt is something, doubting that God will be faithful or doubting that Christ really knows better what is going on in your life. That happened in the Garden of Eden. You remember that? They start doubting. All that Satan had to do was be able to put that seed of doubt in there. Does he really know what's best for your life? Does he really expect you to stay away from that tree? And that seed of doubt starts growing. That's that first symptom. First symptom of heart disease is doubting that God's plan is the best plan. The second symptom is fear. Because when you begin doubting God, fear comes in next. It follows in pretty quickly because the one that you would have trusted the one that you have trusted, you've already started to doubt. The one that you would have trusted to take care of you. The one that you know has all of the world under his thumb. He knows exactly what's going on in the palm of his hands. If, if you start doubting that he is in that control, you start that doubt, all of a sudden it gets pretty scary. Things get pretty uncertain. And you start trying to take control of yourself. You know what, God? I'm going to take this one because I'm not sure that you have it. God, I'm, I'm going to take over my finances and do what I want with my finances. I'm not sure that if I do what you want with my finances that it's all going to work out. God, I'm going to push myself in this direction with my employment situation. Even though I don't necessarily think that's what you would have me do, I need to pay the bills. Or I, I don't want to live there. We see that with Jonah running from going to Nineveh. He says, you know, I'll, I'll go anywhere you want me to go, God, but I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. What is he doing? He's allowing fear to drive his decision-making and God's plan. He's already doubted that God's plan is best. So first, doubt. Second, fear. The next symptom is pride. Now that you've come up with your own plan, and to you it seems better than God's plan. You've come up with it. You say, you know what? I've got a really good plan here, God. I'm going to go through with it. When we look at this passage in Numbers, do you realize the Israelites flat out refused to go into the land. These eight spies were able to turn the tide, all the murmuring and complaining. They were going to dismiss the leadership of Moses. They were not going in regardless of what. They had a better plan than what God had. How prideful and arrogant is that? So you know what? We're not going in there. God, thanks for getting us this far. I'm going to take it from here. And this is what leads to the last one, last symptom, is isolation. Isolation. You cut yourself off from God and his people. You cut yourself off from where God is going. We see this the very first time, and it repeats itself over and over and over again with Adam and Eve. 
What does their sin do? Where does it take them? We find them almost immediately in isolation. Jesus, God, is walking through the garden. He has a normal evening walk with his people, Adam and Eve, that interaction, that connection back and forth. And all of a sudden, Adam and Eve are nowhere to be found. They are hiding. Why? Because that's what sin does is it isolates you and pulls you away from the community. The most dangerous emotion to feel is a numbness towards the thing of God. We say, you know what, God, I don't, I don't necessarily need to be involved in the church anymore. I don't need to be in your word anymore. I don't need to be worried about what is going on around the world with our missionaries and how they are expanding your gospel. You know what, someone else can worry about that. I'm not interested. That numbness, that isolationism, it's a symptom of heart disease. So we've got a case study for heart disease, a symptom of heart disease, what else do I want you to hear today? There's the cure. Number three, there's the cure for heart disease. Beginning or continuing, verse 13. But encourage another, one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So the heart disease doesn't creep in. Verse 14, we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. On a basic level, if you've got computer issues of any sort, do you know what most computer technicians will tell you to do? What's the first thing, or actually the most important thing that you can do? You go over and do what? You turn it off and turn it back on. You reset, you reboot, you go back, you you say, wait a minute, this isn't working. Let's go back. Let's restart. Let's get back to the gospel. Excuse me, in this situation, we go back to the gospel. That's the basis. You start there. Everything builds from there. That's where the cure to spiritual heart disease is. It is the gospel. Hold firm to the gospel. Encourage each other to saying here to hold firm to him. The gospel is the power that makes Christianity revolutionary. Tim Keller says, and I believe, the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity. It is the A through Z's of Christianity. And in fact, the theology that comes right here, look at verse 14. We have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original conviction, what? Firmly to the very end. The original conviction, the ABCs, what do you do? You hold all the way to Z. Hold it to the very end. It's not the diving board by which we jump off into Christianity. No, it's the ocean in which we swim. That is the gospel. The gospel carries everything. Are you having trouble with your marriage? You need the gospel. Are you having trouble with parenting and understanding how to deal with that teenager, how to deal with that insolent child you just cannot seem to bring along? What do you need? You need to understand the gospel and how we relate to it. Are you having trouble with, uh, are you looking at, at a bad attitude, and you realize that I cannot get a conquering over this. I have the sin of a pessimistic and bad attitude. You need to understand the gospel. Are you having trouble with a self-image that you assume if you lose 15 pounds, you assume that you're able to run that half marathon, you assume that you get to the gym 30 days consecutively, that that's going to change everything. What you really need to understand is the gospel. And what I mean when I say by that, we don't grow past the gospel. We grow deeper into the gospel. We press more deeply into the truth 
of God's word and who Jesus is, and it changes everything about what we see and what we view in the world. It changes it all. It changes our scope. It changes the goggles by which we see everything through, our workplace, our generosity. And the gospel isn't just a story or some teaching. The gospel is Jesus Christ. Have you reduced being a disciple of Jesus to checklist Christianity? Where you read the Bible, check. You go to church sometimes, check. You drop a check in the offering plate every once in a while, check. It's void of passion, it's void of love, it's void of pursuit. It's void of anything that causes us to be alive. Wake up. That checklist is an end to itself. The author of Hebrews is looking at a Jewish audience who, who they understood a checklist way better than we would ever understand. The steps that they had lived through their entire lives. Check, 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 check. Jesus, when he's talking to the religious, he says, you are straining at a gnat and trying to swallow a camel. You've missed the whole point. It's void of the veracity of life. Wake up. Hebrews 3.15 is the wake-up call the wake-up call. Verse 15. As has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did during the rebellion. This is the same, he's quoting it again. So if you didn't hear me the first time, wake up, I'm going to say it again. Pay attention. I'm going to repeat this one more time for you so you see where I'm coming from. The author goes back to the story of Israel in the wilderness, quoting again from Psalm 95. And he brings the story home to his readers by asking three sets. There's two rhetorical questions. He's asking three sets in the next few verses. The first question will answer the second question each time. They will parallel these. want the readers to see the situation that Israel went through. This case study is exactly what they are going through there. And we need to see that that parallel is exactly what you and I are living through today. Here's the first rhetorical question. Verse 16. Who were they that heard and rebelled. Were they not all those Moses led out of the Egypt? It's the same people, people. Verse 17, and with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? It's the same people, people. 18, and to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed, it's the same people. Verse 19, so we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Who was unable to enter God's rest? The same people. The very same people. It was Israel's cry for help. The Hebrews, as they are in Egypt and they are enslaved, it is their cry for help that God responds to and sends them their Redeemer, who is Moses. It's the same people there. It was that sinner's cry for help that the Hebrews understand the people that this text is being written to. They understand that cry for help that God on high sent his son Jesus to rescue. The Israelites who consistently bucked God's plan 
in the wilderness were the ones who were never able to find his rest. And you and I, if we're believers who consistently buck against God's plan for this church and God's plan for your life and for mine and say, you know what, I think I've got a better idea how I should live this thing out. We'll never be at rest. We'll never be at rest. There'll be an uneasiness inside of you that you cannot seem to get by. Some of you are living in that this morning. Some of you I've met with a number of times. Others maybe we haven't met at all, but there's this unrest because there's this struggle inside of you. You'll never be at rest until you understand that. Remember, unbelief, or in our example today, heart disease, it produces the symptoms of pride, fear, isolation. But the cure, the gospel, that produces what? Humility. It produces community. Let me use this as an example. The first five episodes of any television, reality TV show, whether it's a talent search of some sort, whether it's a dancing thing or a music thing or the all-inclusive America's Got Talent, that whole thing, the first five episodes of that show, well, you watch with millions of other people if you're interested in it, you watch it, and all of you know that this person has no talent. And they think they're the hottest thing that's ever come across the stage. Millions of people watch and say, this guy is a horrible singer. And in his own mind, he is pretty, pretty neat stuff. And what happens when you live in community, and we all laugh, when we think about this person, we laugh at this person, but the reality is what we need is that when we live in community, you need some other people to look in and say, wait a minute, you need another perspective. Because they are completely blind, and we are completely blind. You are completely blind to your own shortcomings. The book of Ephesians is all about this. We worked our way through Ephesians last year, and if you were with us, thanks for going on that journey with us. But we came through that season, and we came through, and we, we started using that term, we are better together. What is being better together all about? It is about iron sharpening iron, about being able to carry those who are with you. And here in humility and community, we find a breakthrough, and breakthrough after breakthrough. When we come into deeper fellowship with Christ, as we learn what it looks like to disciple one another and be disciples of Jesus and shepherding others through the gospel. We have the privilege here at Randall of almost 200 years of tradition. We're at 190 years and we're moving our way towards 200. There's a heritage of faith here for people who have understood what it meant to live out being disciples of Jesus Christ. And so if we're going to last another 200 years or another 10 years, another three years, it's going to have to be because we are better together, because we understand the responsibility that we have one to another to call out sin, to see heart disease. Because if we don't take it as seriously as heart disease really is, to say, are we going to lose someone every 30 seconds? If we don't take that as seriously to say, if you don't call out these symptoms that we see, this person's heart will become hard and they will fall away from Christ. That's what being in community is all about. And what's this look like? Well, practically speaking, you and I both need to deputize someone with the authority, to, with a hunting license to go through your life and look for sin in your life. And what happens when you allow that? You say, you know what? I'm opening the door 
You go look. You find where there's sin in my life, and I will deal with it. And if you do that correctly, you know it reciprocates itself, and it's mutual. And here as a church, we have a number of ways to do that, and it's going to have to be intentional. That doesn't happen accidentally. That doesn't happen accidentally. It has to be an intentional process to do so. As a church, we've got groups of all shapes and sizes, Bible study groups, moms and more, women's groups. Uh, men, we're beginning a fight club group. The whole process behind this, they become very specialized, but the whole point behind it is can you look into one another's lives and see sin and do all that you can to eliminate it? It's an intentional choice so that heart disease doesn't take over. Verse 15 has just been said, today if you hear his voice. Can I underemphasize the word Today. Today. And he repeats it three different times. This author repeats it three different times in this passage. So what is the bottom line? We're going to go into chapter 4 to really see where the bottom line is here. Beginning in verse 1, it says this in chapter 4. Therefore, if you see that in Scripture, you always look and say, what is that therefore? Well, therefore, connecting all of what we just read in chapter 3, therefore, to summarize, to connect, it's going to take an action step now. Since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. Just as they did. Here's the bottom line. The offer still stands. The offer still stands. The offer is still on the table. Verse 1 says, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, our responsibility is to complete the work, to follow through, to hold fast to Jesus. As the band is coming up, let me try to demonstrate this. Most spring, a lot of us will go on vacation somewhere warmer than here. When the question was asked at the beginning, do you like winter or not? I love winter. Don't get me wrong. But I also don't mind being able to be warm. <laughs> and so many of you, you, you take that spring break as an opportunity. You go somewhere where there's sand and there's water and there's waves and there's a beach and there's sunshine. Because you haven't seen any of those things a number of months. But when you take your kids to the beach and there's this wild ocean out there, what's the thing that all kids want to do? And I remember doing it as well. You want to hold on to daddy's hand and go jump in the waves. It's a terrifying thought, though, to go out there. But when you're holding on to that adult, when you're grasping their hand, you just jump for all your worth and you enjoy it. Why? Because the waves are going to hit. They're going to slosh you around, but they're not going to knock you off your feet and you're not going to be out there on your own. Why? Because you're holding fast onto daddy's hand. Let me give you another example that's a little bit colder. <laughs> I love to teach our kids how to ski. We just did it yesterday. Took one of my, there's a place called Emory Park. It's near here. It's a state park. It's free if you've got your own equipment, which skiing is not usually free. So it's a great spot to go. So I'm taking one of our kids. I've done this with all of them. I take her and you start working your way down the hill. And they're terrified at first. 
But as you make your way down the hill and you start to teach them how to be able to carve back and forth so you don't get hurt, what, what is going to have to happen is I'm going to have to let go. And as her father, my responsibility is to be close, to be nearby. And what is her responsibility? It's to keep the skis aimed down the hill. Because all kids, immediately when they, when they first start to get pulled away, it's the same thing when learning how to ride a bike, but on the skis, as they begin to pull away, all of a sudden, it's almost like this heart, you can see in their body language, they start to crumble and get scared and get nervous, and next thing you know, they just kind of flop over on the ground. Or skiing, they fall backwards, and that actually doesn't help. You go faster. That creates another problem. And they're rocketing towards the lodge, and you're at the top hoping that they don't, you know, kill everyone at the bottom of the hill. But what happens when you are able to be there? This is what I do. I'm able to be there right beside or right behind. And you allow that child to experience for themselves what skiing really looks like to move around. But if they get their skis caught up, I can grab. I can pick them right back up. I'm right there. I'm only an arm's length away. But what's the responsibility of that child? Is to keep the skis pointed downhill. To keep control. To be able to dive in, to focus in, to follow through. Because if all she does is lay down, we're not going skiing. We're not getting anywhere. We haven't done anything. Just like the beach holding fast, holding on to daddy. To be able to say, you know what? Life is going to put some curve. There's going to be some bumps in the road. There's going to be some ripples in the snow. But as I go through those things, I'm going to know that God has things. Because I'm holding fast to him. I know that he's there. And so heart disease, spiritual heart disease, can take hold of any one of us. And it's not about how hard or how strong or how smart you are. Because the people of Israel saw things that you and I will never experience in our entire lives. And they fell away. They had access to God in a way that you and I may not feel like is as tangible as what they saw and what they experienced, and yet they fell away. The only cure for that heart disease is to hold fast to Jesus. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your word. As we dig in here this morning, Lord, I pray that as we talk about resolution, Lord, we're not talking about something that we do talking about clinging, digging our fingernails in and holding on hard to you, allowing you to do the rest. Lord, we pray that you will guide us, you will maneuver us, you will point us in the right direction. You will hold fast when the waves come. Lord, do not allow us to get choked out by sin, to be choked out by things of this world. Allow us to Hold each other accountable, sharpen one another, keep each other aware of some of the symptoms that may be there. Lord, if there's someone here this morning that needs to respond, say, you know what, I'm not even sure that my heart has ever beat after things of God. I pray that they would respond. If you were here this morning and that's the case, I'll be in the back as the song is sung. I would love to be able to share that with you. God, as, as you move and as you work, I pray that you would touch hearts in the way that only you can, that your spirit would ripple through this place. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.